When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. It's the amazing Rico Bronya podcast with your host, Evan Roberts. To our fellow New York Met fans, welcome to a happy edition of Rico Bronya. That's right. We're going to make everybody smile. Everybody's going to be in a good mood no matter what the hell's going on in your life right now. No matter how you feel about this New York Met franchise, we are about to make you smile because we are not going to do a depressing edition of Rico Bronya. We're going to do a happy edition of Rico Bronya. Because today, we are going to debate, Pete and I and everybody listening, the greatest season in the history of the New York Mets. All right, we're done. 1986, 1969. That's the podcast, everybody. We'll see you next time. If only it was that simple. Obviously. If you experienced 1969, if you experienced 1986, I can't imagine how the debate would go further than that. You win a championship, that's the greatest season you've ever had. Period. Stop. Like, there is no further discussion. Unfortunately, for many of us, not just me, many of us, it isn't as simple as that because we don't have that championship. I am 40 years old. 40. 4-0. I was three in 1986. 1986 isn't even a memory because I don't remember it as a three-year-old. I have no memories as a three-year-old, and I'm kind of glad I don't have any memories because it would feel cheap if I had like little tiny bitty memories of a world championship that wouldn't have meant anything to me at the time because I was too young to understand what it actually means. So for all of us, or most of us, under the age of 40 or 41 or 42, whatever that cutoff is, the debate on the greatest season in Met history is a little bit more complicated. Sure, you could say winning the pennant is the best. Problem is, it also involves losing and losing brutally. And to many people listening, that would be a disqualifier. You'd almost rather have a season that was fun and innocent and didn't have that kind of horrible ending. So we'll go through the years that I put up there as my favorite years. Pete will mention his favorite years, and we'll obviously have a nice back and forth. The inspiration for this podcast was that earlier in the offseason, we did the exact opposite. Because 2023 was such a disaster, uh, there was certainly a thought that it was the worst season in the history of the franchise. And we debated it. We talked about the other kind of bad years this franchise had in terms of meeting expectations. Was 2023 the worst? I decided for me it wasn't. For Pete, it was. There were other years that were up there. I talked heavily about 2017. 
Bottom line is if you don't want to be happy and you don't want to think about positive memories, that's okay. You can stop this podcast right now and go into the archives and listen to the depressing edition of Rico Bronia, where we talked about the worst seasons in the history of the New York Mets. So it's completely up to you right now. You have a choice during this holiday season. Happy? Sad. If you want sad, we got it for you. And why stop there? Why stop by just listening to us debating the worst seasons in the history of the New York Mets? Go deeper into the podcast. Listen to us talk at the end of last season. (laughs) Or listen to any podcast we did throughout the 2023 season. Or when they traded everybody away. I mean, you got a lot of options. So this is a rare one. This is a rare one where we are going to smile and we are going to be happy. Because we're going to talk about the best seasons in the history of the New York Mets. But let's start with a little game called expectations. Expectations matter. When you come into a season with high expectations and things are disastrous, that's where you get one of the worst seasons of all time. But isn't it cool when you go into a season and your expectations are sort of limited and then you get something much bigger than you expected? So I had mentioned this when we talked about worst seasons in Met history. I looked at every over-under the New York Mets have ever had since 1990. All the way back to 1990, that's the earliest I've ever seen an over-under. And I looked and I said, where did the Mets overachieve the most? What season has the Mets overachieving based on the expected win total, based on over-under, the most? And we do have an answer. By the way, the underachieving occurred a hell of a lot more than the overachieving. That does not surprise you, Pete, right? That That's not a big surprise? Not, not at all. I'm, I'm, but I, I'm interested to hear what the, the, uh, where they overachieve, because I feel like there's one year that sticks out to me, but I think that's obvious. I feel like I'm, I'm definitely wrong. Is it, is it 2015? 2015, the New York Mets overachieved based on their over-under by seven and a half games. Their expected over-under was 82 and a half, and they won 90 games. There are two other seasons, two other seasons that had a bigger overachievement than 2015. And both of them are kind of in that same area of 12 and 12 and a half games. There was one year where they overachieved by 12 and a half games based on their over-under. There was another year where they overachieved by 12 games, so pretty much the same number. And here are the two years. Are you ready? It was not 2015, but it was a damn good guess because that was third on the list. 2022, which was only a year ago when their over-under was 88 and a half and they won 101 games. The other year, 1997. That was the year they had an over-under of 76 and they went out and won 88 games that season, overachieving by 12. Let's start with that season though, because... I think what's a little funky about 2022 is that the Mets had high expectations. When your over-under is 88.5, that's an expectation of being a playoff team. That's the expectation of being a very good team. If you look at the Met history, there aren't many years in which their over-under is higher than 88.5. They just won so many effing games, 101 of them, that they blew past their over-under. Similarly, the Yankees, like if you play this game with the Yankees, one of their more uh, overachieving seasons was 1998. Yeah, because they won 114 games. 
And their, their over-under was 97. So yeah, they overachieved by 17 and a half games because they won an absurd amount of games. So I think there's a big difference between what happened in terms of overachieving in 2022 and overachieving in 1997. 1997 was an insanely fun season because in the previous year, 1996, the Mets went 71 and 91. And forget what they just did in 96. 95, they were under 500. 94 before the strike, they were under 500. 93, they lost 103 games. 92, they lost 90 games. 1991, they lost 85 games. So going into the 97 season, 91, 92, 93, 94, 95, 96, that's six consecutive losing seasons. A lot of losing. And and I remember as a 13, 14-year-old not thinking much was going to change. Like, why would anything change in 1997? In 1996, the Mets had these three historical offensive seasons from Bernard Gilkey, Todd Hundley, and Lance Johnson, and it meant shit. It didn't mean anything. They lost 91 games. So 97 was a real stunner that they won 88 games. They had a lot of games that season. There was one late in the year against the Expos where Carl Everett hit a game-time grand slam in the ninth inning off of Uga Thurbina. And then Bernard Gilkey won the game a few innings later, like his classic out of nowhere come from behind victory. So 97 was, I got to tell you, for a year in which they did not make the playoffs because they didn't, uh, they were in a pseudo pennant race. Like they were trailing the uh, the Florida Marlins by what seemed to be like between three and five games in the wild card race a lot throughout the month of September. So they were never really in it, in it. But for me, it was our my first pennant race, even if it wasn't really a pennant race, because they were in it. You know, you could at least look at the standings every morning and make an argument of why they're alive. So I don't know what your memories are of 1997, but that was a damn fun year when you consider where they had been, what their expectations were, and then the fact they were able to go out there and win 88 games. Unfortunately for me, I don't remember as much because I just remember I'm in a I'm living in a Yankee household, so I feel like a lot of Yankee memories popped in there, and the Mets memories were like trying to fight off the fact that the Yankees <laughs> won a World Series. So that that that's where a lot of it comes from. I think a lot of the better memories start to pop up in the '99 2000s. For me. Well, it's funny when you say the Yankees. One thing that was also very enjoyable about that 1997 season is that was the first year of interleague play. That was the first time interleague play existed. So for our younger uh, listeners, for those, I guess I'd say under the age of 30, maybe 30, 35 years old, you don't remember a world where there was no interleague play. And I barely do too, honestly. I mean, my first year really remembering baseball was about 1992. So you're talking about a five-year run of there not being interleague play. But those days going into Mets-Yankees in 1997, and before that, the Mets played the Red Sox. The first ever interleague game the Mets ever played was June 13th, 1997 against the Red Sox. Why I remember the date? I'll give you a reason why I remember the day. I remember the day because it was Friday the 13th. And for whatever reason, that jumped out at me, and it was just bizarre, bizarre that the New York Mets were facing the Boston Red Sox. I couldn't get over it. I couldn't get over the fact that my entire life I was told about Mets Red Sox in the 86 World Series 
watching the old videos, and now the Boston Red Sox are coming to Shea Stadium 11 years later? Never made any sense. So there was a lot of excitement about the Mets even playing the Red Sox. And then three days later, Monday night, Yankee Stadium, the first ever Subway Series game, a game that is still near and dear to all of our hearts and will be in my book that's coming out April 3rd. Dave Malicki walks his ass in a Yankee Stadium and delivers the best performance of his career, striking out Derek Jeter with that bendy curveball to finish it. And the Mets beating the Yankees in the first ever Subway Series game. They can't take that away from us. Sorry, they can't take it away from us. Now, did the Yankees win game two of that series? Yes. Did they win the rubber game on a Wednesday afternoon on a game-winning hit by Tino Martinez? Yes, they did. Did they get the last laugh on the first ever Met Yankee series? Yes, they did. Have they won basically the season series almost every time? Yes, they have. But that first game is mine. That first game is ours. They can't take that some bitch away from us. They can't take that memory of Dave Malicki dealing. And I do think that adds to the 97 season, that you did have that first ever season of interleague play. So that's up there. That's in my top five as one of the most fun seasons in New York Met history, 1997. Uh, as far as 2022 is concerned, as the other overachieving year, I got to be honest with you, and, and maybe this is age, maybe this is expectation, not that fun. <laughs> Not that fun. I think the end of the season spoils it so badly that I don't know if I'll ever go back and look at 2022 in this light of, oh, that was fun, the way I just did 1997. I just talked about a season, Pete, in a glowing fashion in which they were barely in a pennant race. They didn't make it. 2022. I think it's what happened against Atlanta and obviously what happened against San Diego that just makes makes me look at that season and say it was a big year in terms of wins. I, yes, certainly there were fun moments in the middle of it, but they totally ruined it by the choke job at the end of the season. Yeah, but here's the thing, right? So I'll disagree with a little bit because the end of the season was bad, but the whole way they had they they were winning games the way they were winning games. So the ending, listen, if you're not winning a World Series, the ending's gonna suck no matter what. So, I, but at least I walked in there feeling that the that this team is gonna be good and they delivered. Like that to me was special. Watching the Pete Alonso home run versus the Cardinals to walk off home run, like that was that was special. And you just felt that every time this team went out there. Was gonna, they were gonna do something to find a way to win, and and they did for the most part. All right, let's let's pinpoint this then, because you bring up something that that is true, which is, hey, anytime you're gonna get knocked out, it's gonna be bitter. 